Has anybody seen the new Disney Pixar movie, Inside Out? Who has seen that movie? I, I got a, a, a disappointed no from Emma Kurtz. Where are your parents? So how many of you would like to see that movie? Yeah, absolutely. Your parents are like, thanks, Pastor Chris. There goes my Tuesday night and 50 bucks. Now, I'm, if you haven't seen it, I won't ruin the movie for you, I promise. But in this movie, Inside Out, it's a, it's a cute story about this girl, little girl named Riley and her emotions. And, and the thing that they do in this movie with Riley's emotions is they bring them to life. These emotions are personified as real characters. So there's joy and sadness and anger and fear. And I think there's one more. I don't know what the other one is. But there's these emotions. And at one point in the movie, two of the characters, joy and sadness, find themselves far away from their headquarters, which is the place that they live and work. And so things are going wrong. And if they're going to save the day, they have to find a way to get back to headquarters, don't they, kids? But the problem is that the only way back is through Riley's long-term memories. Now, this is like this vast labyrinth of long hallways, twists and turns, and lots of surprises. And so, in essence, this movie is about joy and sadness trying to find the best way home. And actually, that's not that dissimilar to the lessons that our kids have been learning this week, as they have been on this fun and exciting journey off the map, trying to figure out the best way to walk and to live in this crazy journey that we call life sometimes, right? And so, kids, I wonder if you might help me by reciting the verse of the week, the theme verse, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 21, for all of these fine folks as we get our sermon started, okay? It's up on the walls if you need a hand, so on the count of three, let's recite that verse. Ready? One, two, three. Somehow that went a little differently in my mind. But yes, 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 that's fantastic. Your ears will hear a word behind you saying, this is the way walking it, whether you turn to the right or whether you turn to the left. And so in essence, what our kids have been learning this week is that God's way is our best way in every way. Right, kids? God way, God's way is our best way in every way. But we really need to tease that out a little bit this morning. I mean, Why? Why is God's way our best way? What about our way? Why is his way so much better than ours? What does it even look like to walk God's way or to live God's way? These are the questions that we're going to be asking as we open the Bible together this morning. So I'm going to pray and then uh, we will dismiss the kids back to you, uh, you parents and grandparents. Kids, pray with me. Father, we are so thankful for the opportunity today to learn from our children I pray that our ears would be open to your word this morning and that you would change us by the work of your spirit as he speaks through your word, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's hear it again for our kids. Kiddos, you can head back with your parents. Thank you very, very much. Go head back. You kids were fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, sweetie. Thank you, Miss Betsy. Miss Betsy's going to take a nap now. <laughs> She's going to be on a journey off to nap instead of off the map for like a week. <laughs> well, listen, as we settle back in, 
As we settle back in, why don't you grab your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 30. So we're going to take a look today at the majority of Isaiah 30, the chapter that contained our, uh, our memory verse for the week in VBS. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and open up to page 590 of the Pew Bibles in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, that one is yours. Please take it home. We'd love you to have that. Isaiah 30. God's way is our best way in every way. And the way that Isaiah lays this out for us in chapter 30, the, the chapter is really split in half. And so you want to have a, an imaginary line in your Bibles right around verse 18. So the first 17 verses, Isaiah paints the picture of what our way looks like. What it looks like to walk in our way or, or the way of rebellion. And then in verse 18, and 18 going forward, he, he gives us God's way or the way of restoration. And so we have this two, these two contrasting pictures And in looking at those pictures, we're going to find out why God's way really is our best way. So beginning in verse 1, we'll see first that in walking our way, we impatiently turn to false securities. By doing life on our own terms, we have this tendency to make impatient grabs for false security. Let's look at it together starting in verse 1. I'll read out loud, but please follow along in your Bibles. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation." So just to frame this quickly in a bit of historical context, what we have here is the nation of Israel facing this growing threat from a nation called Assyria. And so rather than turning to the Lord for counsel and direction, rather than waiting on him in faith, they decide, no, no, something's got to happen here. So they, they impatiently take matters into their own hands And they run to Egypt to try to make a treaty with them to gain protection and security. Now, it's important for us to remember as we think about Egypt that this is the nation that oppressed Israel for years, right? I mean, this is the nation from which God delivered them mightily by signs and by wonders. And so, why in the world would they want to run back to Egypt of all places? But the truth is that it's pretty easy for us, this side of history, to stand in judgment over Israel... But the truth of the matter is that we don't like to wait either, do we? I mean, some of you are sitting in the pew right now thinking, I can't wait till this guy finishes. Let's let's take this for example. We go off to Giant Eagle. We need some eggs and some milk and just a couple of things. So we go to the store. We park in the the parking spot that's closest to the door, right, because we want to get in sooner. And we bring our groceries up to the front. and, And what's the first thing we look for once we get to the front of the store? Yeah, somebody said it. The shortest line. We don't want to wait, so we go to the shortest line. And, and let's not talk about if we're in the 12 items or less line and the person in front of us has 13 items. I mean, the, the injustice, the humanity of it all, that we would, we would have to wait. We don't like to wait. We're very impatient people. How much worse than when we become discontent with God's place and discontent with his pace and we go off on our own? The sad irony, of course, to this approach to living 
these impatient grabs for false senses of security is that it really doesn't work. Right? Verse 3, the protection of Pharaoh will turn to your shame and the shelter of the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. Walking our way and impatiently turning to anything but the Lord will never provide the security that we crave and that we need. So some questions for us today is, are we content to wait on the Lord to provide exactly what we need in our lives exactly when we need it? Are we secure enough to trust that God really is sovereign in the directing the lives of his people, directing the affairs of the world? Are we secure in him? Or are we more given to impatient grabs for securities that really will only let us down rather than trusting and being content with the love of God in Christ? There's a second aspect to doing life our way. So we grab for false securities, but also in walking our way, we intentionally distort God's word. Our way, the way of rebellion, as Isaiah describes it, is is the way that, that twists and distorts the word of God. Look at it in verses 8 to 13. And now, go write it before them on a tablet. Inscribe it in a book, that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever... For they're rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, don't prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word, And trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them. Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse. What we see here is the image of rebellion going even deeper. You see, the issue is not just an external treaty with Egypt. It was not just an external reliance upon them. The the, the deep issue here is that they were actually intentionally rejecting the counsel of the Lord. They were trusting in the wrong thing. And essentially they were saying, all right, Lord, enough already with this. we've, We've had enough of your prophets. We've heard enough about your holiness and our obedience. Here's what we'd like you to do. We'd like you to amend your word to fit our tastes and interests. It's fascinating to me that they didn't say stop speaking. They just said, speak to us the things that we want to hear. Which is so, so common and And so, so similar to what the Apostle Paul told Timothy several thousand years later. Hundreds, rather. 2 Timothy 4. The time is coming, he said, when people won't endure sound teaching, but they'll have itching ears to accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And gang, this is as true today as it was for Isaiah and as it was for Paul and as it was for Timothy. In the world around us, we often hear things like this. You know, that doctrine... That's, that's a little outdated. I mean, you can't really believe that, that modern people are supposed to, to line up with this truth. I mean, you Christians have got to get with the, the times. You've got to get with the program. I mean, truth is just relative anyway, isn't it? And so why not change our definition of truth to fit our desires, to fit our interests? These are some of the things we hear. How do we respond? We don't have the time today to address every question, but I will say just in the matter of relativism, briefly, relativism is a pretty popular worldview out there. It's the worldview that says there there are no objective moral truths, there are no timeless, absolute realities. It's all just relative to the individual. 
Well, there's lots of problems with relativism, foremost of which is that it's a totally self-refuting argument. Because to make the claim that there are no absolute and timeless truth claims is to make an absolute and timeless truth claim. So it's a self-refuting kind of worldview. The other thing is that, that relativism is wildly inconsistent. So, for example, uh, so many of the tragedies that have happened recently in our country, the, the shootings in, in the Charleston church just recently with, with these uh, servicemen, I have not heard one person, I've not heard one news story that says, well, listen, you know, if it was right for the killer, then who are we to argue? I've not heard that one time. I've not heard one affirmation that this was just kind of subjectively wrong. Nobody's saying this. That's why relativism, frankly, doesn't work. And that's why we ought to rejoice that God has given us a timeless, objective, and clear word, not only on these matters, but how we can know him, how we can love him and serve him. But listen, distorting God's word is not only a challenge for people who would say, I'm not a Christian. This doesn't escape the church. We see that in evangelicalism all over the world today, but to bring it even more close to home, how about you? I mean, what about the sharp truths of God's word as a sword that cuts and a hammer that crushes? What about the Bible's teaching on things like hell or persecution for the sake of Jesus? What about the commission for every Christian to speak God's word prayerfully to others, the call to evangelize? What about giving and generosity? When, when we come up against these truths, do we, like Israel, demand that God change his word or do we ignore it, ignore it or distort it? I love what pastor and author Tim Keller says. He says, if you are worshiping a God who never disagrees with you, then you are probably worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Somebody just went, uh-oh. I mean, but it's really true. It really is true. God loves us enough to disagree with us. We have no right to hold him hostage as to what truth is or isn't. He is creator. He is Lord of all. In fact, that is the remedy to this issue. When we face a challenging aspect to God's word, it's not to demand rebelliously that he change. It's to remember that Christ really is Lord. That God really raised him from the dead. And if he is who he said he was, then His perspective and his word on every matter is the perspective that we ought to seek to understand and adopt and practice. Otherwise, as we saw from verses 13 and 14, this iniquity shall be like a breach in a high wall. In other words, when we go around distorting God's word, our bubble is eventually going to burst. So, in walking our way, we've got impatient turns and grabs for false security. We've got this distortion of God's word But thirdly, in walking our way, we also stubbornly refuse to repent and turn to God. This is us on our way, digging in our heels, saying, Lord, no thank you, I'm good where I'm at, no need for me to turn or change direction, I am fine right here, stubbornness. We see it in verses 15 to 17, look down at it. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling and said, No, we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you shall flee away. And we will ride on swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee until you're like a flagstaff on top of a mountain. 
like a signal on a hill. So here we have God reaching out to his people, saying, stop. Turn around. You're, you're going the wrong way. Turn around and follow me. But their response, as we see the last word there in verse 15, they were, what does the text say? Unwilling. This would be the same thing as a sick patient stubbornly refusing to take a foolproof and free remedy that their physician offers them. This is the same thing as the person who stubbornly will drive a hundred miles out of their way rather than pull over and ask for directions or plug it in the GPS and let Siri take you the rest of the way. Just stubbornness. I'd rather go a hundred miles out of my way. It's foolish. It's ridiculous. It is. But, as commentator Barry Webb points out, it is not the way of rebels to listen to reason. So what does this mean for us? Well, what it means is that when we stubbornly refuse to repent and to turn to God as Lord, we are just as unreasonable, even more so, as the patient who refuses to take the cure. Just as stubborn and more so as the person who drives a hundred miles in the wrong direction. Listen, whether it's the decision to turn to the Lord for the very first time today, if you're here and you say, you know what, I, I feel like I'm walking down my own road. Today is the day to turn. Today is the day to receive the grace of God, to turn to him for the first time and to look to Jesus. Or whether you're here and you've been a Christian for a million years, it's finally time to turn and repent and lay down that sin that has been nagging you and nipping at your heels for years. This is all the impatient grabs for false security, the distorting of God's word, the refusal to repent, all the disaster of walking our way. So the alternative, right? We said it earlier, God's way is our best way in every way. And in verse 18, we have this giant hinge that takes us from our way to God's way. And as we turn that corner, we see first that in walking God's way, we find God waiting to give grace. Despite all of our rebellious nonsense, the Lord remains faithful and waits to extend grace. Look at it in verses 18 to 19. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. This is remarkable to me. The remarkable, amazing grace of God. It's remarkable not only because the text says that God is waiting to give grace, but he is actually eager to give grace. That, that phrase in, in verse 18 there means to rise up. The phrase exalts himself. The Revised Standard Version does a great job. I think it translates it. He rises up. It's this picture of God almost on his tiptoes, leaning into it, eager, waiting to give grace. It's the same picture of God that we see in the story of the prodigal son, probably the most well-known parable of Jesus, right? The son, the wayward son goes away, he squanders his inheritance, and his father is eagerly waiting. 
to extend grace. He sees him off in the distance. And what does he do when he sees him? He pulls up his robe. He runs to him. He embraces him. He kisses him. And he throws him an amazing welcome home party. This is what it means to find God waiting and eager to give grace. And I love the way that Ray Ortland describes these verses. He says that, that we wait for God in that we wait in faith. We wait in confidence that his timing is right and his methods are wise. And for his part, the Lord also waits, exercising continual patience with us. His faithfulness is what we can look forward to. So when we find ourselves asking the question, how long, O Lord, how long? His answer just might be, whenever you're ready. So in sharp contrast to our impatient grabs for security, here we have the Lord graciously, actively waiting to extend grace and give us the security that we really need. And this is just one way that God's way is our best way. A second is that in following God's way, we also hear him speaking his true word. So when we're we're following the Lord, when we're living in step with his spirit, we are sure to hear his encouraging word. We get this in uh, verses 20 and 21. Look at it with me. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. This is our theme verse from this year's Vacation Bible School. And there's so much that we can glean from these two verses. First, I think it's really interesting that in seeing God as our teacher, clearly, uh, in hearing his true word, not demanding that he distort it, this doesn't eliminate the bread of adversity, as Isaiah phrases it, or the waters of affliction. This is really consistent with Israel's history, and it's certainly consistent for us today, isn't it? Life is really hard sometimes. You may be here today. I can't imagine that there's not at least one person in the room today, a a group this size, that this is the worst week of your year. Life is really difficult, whether it's the consequence of our own personal sin, the brokenness of a fallen world, the sin or the transgression of someone else against you, the Lord's disciplinary hand of refining judgment. Adversity is present even for the Christian The difference, though, and catch this, between living our way and living God's way is that in God's way, we hear his encouraging word to preserve and sustain us. I also love to hear that God says we have his word when we turn to the right or when we turn to the left. We don't have the time to go into a full teaching on on guidance in God's voice, but but let me just say quickly that, that God is faithful to make himself known to us. He tells us the way. He's not hiding his will from us like we're playing some game of cosmic clue. That's not how it works. God has revealed himself to us clearly and, yes, sufficiently in his word. Clearly and sufficiently. And I wonder if we really believe that. I mean, I wonder if we really believe that God's word is sufficient for our understanding the way in which we ought to walk and live, for understanding his will? Do we really believe that God has spoken all we need for obedience and growth and Christ-likeness? When was the last time that we trembled at God's word? 
when we realize that we were hearing from the Lord of the universe and in humility and brokenness, not demanded that he change his word, but submit ourselves to it, knowing that his way is our best way. Third reason that God's way is our best way. Walking in God's way, we gladly repent and turn to him. Repentance is one of the essential, natural, and ongoing byproducts of walking in God's way. Repentance, that, that turn, that change of mind, that change of directions. Verse 22, look at it. Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver, your gold-plated metal images. You'll scatter them as unclean things, and you will say to them, be gone. This is what happens when we're walking in God's way. We gladly and emphatically say to our idols, get out, no more. We see that they are but a dim flicker when what we really need is the light of a blazing sun. And so we cast them aside for what they are, dust. I doubt very, very much that I would walk into your living room this afternoon and find a tiny little shrine uh, built to, to other gods next to your flat screen TV. Probably wouldn't find that. However, uh, if I had the ability to look into your heart, into my own heart, what little gods would we find? What little idols would have, would have risen up? Perhaps the, the pursuit of a promotion at work or, or the, the desire to make a business so successful that it costs you your family. Dare I say, maybe it's the idol of the American dream. Maybe it's suburbia that is killing us quietly. It is wooing us. All we think about is getting a little bigger house with a, a, a picket fence that's a little bit bigger and a little cleaner and it's, got, it's white and it's perfect and we need one more child and maybe a dog and it's this kind of American dream thing that is absolutely consuming us. If you want to know where your idols are, look two places. Look in your checkbook and look in your nightmares. And you will most likely find something, and probably a good thing, to be honest, Idols are often good things that just become elevated to a status that, that they don't merit. So check those things out. Guard against them. And in walking God's way, t- turn, turn away from that. Cast them aside. Cast them aside. So I hope you've seen to this point, right? We spent a lot of time in Isaiah 30. We've looked at a lot of text. And, and the contrasting pictures that Isaiah is giving us here, right? Our impatient grabs for security in the wrong place, and then the Lord waiting to give grace. Our demanding that God change his word, and God revealing himself clearly as our teacher, speaking his clear word of direction to us. And then also this idea of repentance goes from us digging our heels in in the earlier part of the passage, we will not go there, to gladly laying down and casting down our idols. It is clear, God's way is our best way in every way. But there's, there's a final component to walking in God's way that we've got to get before we run out of here today. Lastly and climactically, in following God's way and walking his way, we are brought face to face with Jesus. You see, Jesus is God's way personified. He is the clearest proof the most tangible proof that God's way really is our best way in every way. And, and this idea of coming face to face with Jesus also means that God's way is not some nebulous road that we just kind of walk along. 
God's word is not like a fortune cookie that we crack open every now and then to look for a little juice to get us through the day, some good fortune. God's way isn't just a, a, a map that we follow. It is a person. God's way is a person that we worship and adore and follow and trust. This is something Jesus says about himself in John's gospel, John chapter 14. He says this to his disciples. He says, I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Well, Thomas, in a moment of honesty, raises his hand and says, uh, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can, how can we know the way? Jesus responds, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so from this massive statement, we see that Jesus is not only our best way, he's also our only way. Because he is the only one who is uniquely qualified on the cross after living a life of absolute perfection and purity, deserving everything but punishment. He actually died. He he received punishment, the punishment that belongs to us. The punishment for us stubbornly walking in our own way apart from God. He took that punishment. And because his sacrifice was perfect, Jesus fully satisfied the wrath and justice of God against our sin. Thus, making a way for us to be forgiven. Making a way for our relationship with God to be restored. And this is huge. Please don't miss this. This is why Isaiah can write that God is both just and gracious. I wonder if you caught it from verse 18. If you didn't, please look at verse 18 again in Isaiah 30. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you, for the Lord is a God of justice. Wait a minute. How in the world do grace and justice come together? That this doesn't seem right. The only way that that's true is that if God finds a way to fulfill the requirements of his own holiness and righteousness, dealing justly with sin, and a way to show mercy and give grace to his people. It's the only way it works. It's the only way Isaiah can write something like this. Thanks be to God that only in Christ, our best and only way to God's justice and mercy collide, come together. Because the life of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, does in fact fully satisfy God's justice, his wrath against sin, his commitment to himself and his own holiness, and make a way for stubborn rebels like us to be brought back into a right relationship with God. Do you see the uniqueness there? That's the only way it works It's the only way Isaiah can write this. But Jesus has been raised from the dead, which means that God put a stamp called mission accomplished on the life and ministry of Jesus. So he has done it. He has made the way. He is our way. I hope this has at least in some way become a little clearer today, that God's way culminated in the person and work of Jesus is our best and only way So, which way are you walking? I mean, that's really the big question, isn't it? Are we going along marching to the beat of our own drum, doing life on our own terms, our own way, or are we walking in God's way, 
Are we walking in Christ? Have we surrendered ourselves to him as Lord? And are we walking in step with his spirit? Our closing exhortation comes from an excerpt in the Valley of Vision. This is a wonderful book of old Puritan prayers. I close with these words. Would you bow with me? Thou hast given me a Savior. Produce in me a faith to live by him. May I enter him as my refuge. Build on him as my foundation. Follow him as my guide. Walk in him as my way.